live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A robust response. The UK's COBRA committee meeting after promising to respond to Iran's seizure of an oil tanker. A shooting star, Shanghai's new tech exchange star market soaring in its first day of trade and the need for speed. Top Gun 2 hits some diplomatic turbulence over Maverick's bomber jacket. It's Monday. Let's make a move. move once again. Hope you all had a great weekend. I can tell you we were sweltering here in New York in temperatures above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The question, of course, for markets this week is given all the data we're going to get, the earnings as well, do we add fuel to the market rally here in some fire or do we pour cold water on that market rally. Right now, I can tell you futures are higher. We're less than three quarters of a percent away from those record highs. So many earnings, though, to digest this week. 25%, in fact, of the S&P 500 reporting, including the likes of Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook and McDonald's. We'll get a further gauge, of course, of the power of the pocketbook for U.S. consumers. The bank earnings last week, and I'll keep talking about these, they were a good sign, showing consumer loan demand is solid. Retail sales data, of course, was robust, key, ahead of Q2 U.S. growth numbers on Friday this week. That said, of course, as we stressed last week, trade still matters, and forecasts for many of these corporates will remain front and center. Q. A tweet then from the editor-in-chief of the Global Times over in China. It's a handle now that market watchers pay very close attention to. The tweet suggesting that Chinese importers are gearing up to buy U.S. agricultural products. Why do we care? Well, this is one of the promises that China made as part of the trade truce. Anything that will help restart formal U.S.-China trade negotiations, I think, is going to be seen in a positive light right now, particularly as investors watch what's going on and the further ratcheting up of tensions in the Middle East. Lots of uh, watch points to watch. Let's get to that because that's where we're going to start the drivers. Oil rallying over global tensions with Iran. The UK government promised a robust action response if Tehran does not release that seized tanker. Uh, Matthew Chance is in the UAE for us uh, on this story. Matthew, great to have you on the show. The UK COBRA emergency committee meeting this morning as well to kind of formulate a response here at the same time, the Iranians saying that they've seized 17 individuals they believe have connections to the CIA. So all sorts of news flow from the region this morning. Yeah, there are lots of different issues that are ratcheting up tensions even further here in this whole Persian Gulf region. The first one uh, that you mentioned, that issue of the captured or the seized uh, British flagged oil tanker, uh, which is still being held just a few miles from where I'm standing now. Uh, in the southern Iranian port city of Bandar Abbas. An Iranian flag is flying over that British-flagged vessel uh, right now. And we've just had, within the past few hours, the first images from inside the vessel showing the crew members. Now, there's 23 uh, crew members uh, on board from countries like India and Latvia and the Philippines and Russia, in fact. Um, and there's been a lot of concern expressed by their families about their welfare. They're shown on, on Iranian state television for being pretty good spirits and then you know, going about their normal business on board that ship. But their future, Julia, depends on the outcome of the next few hours and what Britain decides to do 
to try and get that tanker released from Iranian custody. You mentioned high-level meetings underway in London right now. They've promised robust action, but exactly what they're going to do, we're not quite sure. Possibly sanctions, possibly discussing with allies how they could protect British shipping uh, in the area and other shipping, of course, in the area by providing escorts or convoy, convoy patrols to escort those oil tankers and cargo ships uh, out of the, uh, the Persian Gulf. Uh, but what the British say, and this should provide some reassurance to the markets, what the British say is that they want a diplomatic solution to this, not a military one. At the same time, you know, set it against the ratcheting up of tensions between the United States and Iran, and the whole thing looks increasingly uh, dangerous, Julian. I couldn't agree more, and you make the perfect point here, I think, is what kind of response can the UK do here when they've promised a robust response without further damaging diplomatic efforts, particularly if they want to go the peaceful route here? I mean, I mentioned at the reports this morning, the Iranians saying now that they've found or seized 17 individuals with connections to the CIA. I mean, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, was asked about this uh, in the United States this morning, and he was very cautious about what to say, but he suggested that the Iranians can lie. And that's the problem here. We've got all sorts of avenues where the, the tensions are ratcheting up. Everybody has to be very careful here not to precipitate violence, I think, a military response. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this uh, incident that, was, uh, that came to light earlier today with Iran announcing that it had broken up a CIA spy ring, essentially, and had detained 17 Iranian nationals that it said had individually been recruited by the CIA exchange, in exchange for financial rewards and promises of you know, U.S. residency and jobs and health care and, and things like that, I think was an attempt to, first of all, show the, the Iranian people and, and to show the world that the Iranians can still you know, kind of, uh, you know, st I've still got a handle on the intelligence issues in their country. Also, it paints the United States domestically in Iran as um, a, a country that is provocative. That probably has resonance amongst many Iranians as well. But, you know, here's one of the big ironies of this whole uh, latest incident invo involving the British ship. Britain has been one of the countries that has been arguing strongly for sanctions to be lifted against Iran. It was very much opposed to the U.S. decision last year to pull out of that multinational Iranian nuclear agreement. It's been working hard to try and keep that agreement alive. When you've got this situation emerging and you've got a new British prime minister about to take office, who could well be more sympathetic to the American point of view when it comes to Iran and its malign activity in the region, then you could see a sea change in British policy towards the Islamic Republic. Critical point. Matthew Chance, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver, a stellar debut for China's Nasdaq-style star market. The 25 companies listed surging an average of 140%. One, in fact, as much as 520%. Cherise Pham joins me now. Wow. I mean, these kind of market moves for an individual stock would normally be suppressed. They would be capped in China. So there's plenty of unique differences about this index. Talk us through it, Cherise. A couple unique differences, absolutely, Julia. And really, analysts were forecasting to expect crazy days on the first day of trading, and crazy is what we got. We had one massive company uh, moving 520% and then eventually gave back some of those gains. It was the best performer today, which was a company that makes uh, semiconductor products. They ended the day up quadruple their stock price. They were up 400%. That was Angie Microelectronics Technology. And the lowest performer today still clocked in an impressive 
84% gain. But there are a few key differences between the star market and existing Chinese boards. If we can take a look at a few of them, we've got the fact that companies that are not profitable are allowed to list. Companies with dual class shares, so dual voting rights, are also allowed to list. And we've got no limits, no caps on stock prices for the first five days. That is massive on other tech boards. If you IPO, you cap out at 44%. And we've got uh, the last one that's really a key one here is it, it gives issuers control over price and timing. So this, this is really a board that is meant to attract China's homegrown tech companies to seek money in China. Because, you know, the past tech giants that we've seen, Alibaba and Tencent, they have chosen not to list in China. They went elsewhere. They went to New York and Hong Kong to list, Julia. Yeah, I mean, this is really flying the flag and saying, guys, we've got an equivalent index of something like the NASDAQ, something that you can go abroad for. We've got it here right now. I mean, it's interesting to allow the kind of volatility, the sharp moves, unlike other markets. But, you know, a couple of investors I spoke to said, but there's always this perception in China that the government backs these. This is such a huge project of flying the flag for, for China and the Chinese markets that, that the government will support it anyway. So it's kind of a win-win. What do we think of that? Yeah, I, I, it is a win-win, especially because this was not only a government-backed project, this was a project that President Xi Jinping himself announced, I think, barely a year ago. So it's backed by the absolute top dog in the Chinese government. So you are going to see a little bit of a different play out. We have seen other NASDAQ-style boards try to launch in China and fail spectacularly. But like this time, the star market is looking to the United States. It is copying some of the U.S. techniques that we have seen work so well and that have attracted Chinese companies to those boards. So including the dual class listing shares, for example, and also tinkering with the more streamlined process uh, for IPOs to, to come to market. That includes giving, giving issuers and companies more control over the size and the timing of IPOs. These are all things that will attract, hopefully, tech companies to list in their homegrown markets. But we shall have to wait and see. And I know that is really a bit of a cliche in TV land, but it is true because today we saw 25 companies list on this exchange. None of them are household names. And at the moment, we are hearing uh, speculation that Alibaba is pursuing a secondary listing. It's not going to be in mainland China, but they are at the moment looking to Hong Kong. So we will see if the current future big tech darlings like ByteDance, if that chooses to list on the star market, then we will really be in business, Julia. Yes, interesting. We shall see. It's got a long way to go before it uh, manages to perhaps challenge the likes of uh, Hong Kong and the Nasdaq, but doesn't mean they won't try. Cherise Pham, thank you so much for that. All right. Thank you. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. The British Foreign Office Minister has resigned ahead of Boris Johnson's expected victory in the race to become the next Prime Minister. Over the weekend, the Finance Minister Philip Hammond and Justice Secretary David Gorp confirmed they would quit if Boris Johnson wins. The result is due to be announced on Tuesday morning. And India has liftoff. The country has launched an unmanned rocket to the moon after delaying it last week due to technical difficulties. 
It is aiming to become the fourth country to make a soft landing on the moon's surface. Nikhil Kumar is in New Delhi for us. A landmark moment, Nikhil. Great to have you with us. As uh, India becomes or tries to become a space superpower here and the fourth nation, of course, to uh, achieve a soft landing on the moon. Talk us through it. Uh, that's right, Julia. This, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as you mentioned, this was meant to happen last week, but there was a technical snag, which meant that this launch was delayed by a week. Now that the rocket's gone up, uh, the aim is to land a rover on the moon uh, sometime in early September. And as you say, that'll make India only the fourth nation in the world to do this. This, of course, comes after many other headlines that we've seen over the years about India making forays into space. You had that Mars mission several years ago that grabbed everybody's attention, uh, partly because it was extremely low cost. Uh, so India has a lot of ambitions here. They've outlined other plans in coming years. By 2022, they'd like to put uh, Indian astronauts into space. They've even uh, uh, hinted at plans for an Indian space station. Uh, so a lot of ambition here, and a lot of this, Julia, is signaling, signaling that, look, India is a power that's here to be counted, uh, although some analysts that we've been speaking to recently have said to us that, look, whilst there are lots of hopes and ambitions, it's still the question that in many cases, the budget, for example, just isn't there. Although the budgetary allocations have been rising for space in India, the money still isn't there to achieve all the goals. But nonetheless, this is a signal that the country is making strides uh, in the final frontier. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see two months, of course, till that landing. So uh, a bit of a time to uh, wait and watch. Nikko Kumar, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Something else we're watching as well. Thousands of protesters could take to the streets in Puerto Rico today, calling for the resignation of Governor Rosello over the leak of offensive chat messages. Leila Santiago joins us now from the Leila. Thousands of people expected to take to the streets. I believe the organizers say we could see as many as one million. I mean, that's a third of the population. What are we expecting to see today? A key moment just in the last five minutes. I want to show you what's behind me. These are the truckers that have arrived to close off a major artery here, a major expressway in which north and south traffic will be blocked. They came in honking their horns. People were, um, you know, flying their flags, cheering, because this is where it starts today for many people as they call for the resignation. People have been busted in from all parts of the island. Gathered here in unity, all calling for the resignation of the governor, saying that his announcement yesterday was not enough. That is what I'm getting from the people we have talked to. But let me let you uh, talk to them uh, yourself. I, I, why, why are you guys here today? We're here because we're demanding the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo Rosselló, to resign because he has disrespected Puerto Ricans. We're here fighting for what's just for our country. So what will it take to end all of this? His resignation, nothing else. We're this not will not stop. Protesters will not yeah, stop until he resigns. Yep. Okay. On a personal level, what does it feel like to be here today? This is a historic moment here on this island. What What's running through your mind? How are you feeling? I feel the perfect representation of the Puerto Rican youth out here strong and sturdy until he resigns and we're not backing down no matter what. What do you feel people out off the island need to understand about what's happening right here in Puerto Rico? <laughs> I 
think that they need to understand that one, we're not giving up to start with, and then that what they do outside of the island also helps us creating awareness. So all the Puerto Ricans who are not on the island give us support so we can keep going and keep fighting. And it doesn't end with his resignation. There's so much more that we have to do, and we just need to end corruption on a whole. It's a history that has lasted for so many years, and we need to get over it with corruption. Ladies, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. Again, this is, you have one gentleman back here saying the people have power. You certainly can feel a sense of pride and patriotism as we've been here, but also a sense of um, resiliency and determination to not back down. Yeah, at a critical time, of course, in the recovery after Hurricane Maria. Lila Santiago, thank you so much for that. Pretty clear there, as you saw, uh, nothing short of a resignation here from the governor will be enough. We'll continue to keep you uh, posted on those developments there for the protests in Puerto Rico. For now, let's move on. Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, condemned shocking scenes of mob violence that took place on Sunday night. At the train station north of the city centre, 45 people have been hospitalised. One man is in a critical condition. Five women in serious condition. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but still to come, one of the largest hacks in U.S. history will cost Equifax a record of nearly $700 million. And as trade wars and tensions rise across the globe, we'll look back on times of international cooperation and the legacy of Bretton Woods, the 75th anniversary. Stay with us. You're watching First Move. Welcome back to First Move, live from the floor at the New York Stock Exchange this Monday morning, where we are looking at a positive open for U.S. markets. The tech stocks looking set to outperform. We did see a losing week last week, though, so a bit of consolidation. The S&P and the Nasdaq falling some 1%, the Dow around half. It was the worst week, actually, for the Nasdaq since May. So uh, interesting to uh, watch the techs this week, particularly in light of earnings. We've also got the uh, first read on the second quarter GDP numbers, the growth numbers from the United States. This is the last big economic reading before the Fed's policy meeting, of course. The Atlanta Fed is putting Q2 growth numbers at 1.6%, which is interesting. Weaker than Q1's 3.1% growth. But we've got some interesting context coming. Joining me now, Ellen Zentner. She's chief U.S. economist from Morgan Stanley. Ellen, good morning. and Great Hi, to Julia. have you with us. Thank you. You are significantly different on Q2 growth readings. You think 2.5% growth in the second quarter following retail sales. Yeah, we think it could come in that strong. That's a very strong quarter. The way the Fed is looking at it, though, is that that's a little bit of old news. Yes, and what we're worried about is what happens after this. So what are you thinking as we go throughout the year then? Because that's what, as you say, the Fed's focusing on right now is as strong as perhaps Q2 looks on a relative basis. Yeah. The future is more important. So 14 of the 17 FOMC participants see downside risk to the outlook. Yeah. And it's all about global growth and trade. It's not about how healthy the domestic economy is. As you mentioned, retail sells strong. We know the domestic economy is strong. We want to keep it that way. Uh, we think that growth could be as sluggish as one and a half, one point six percent in the back half of the year. And that's why the Fed needs to cut rates. We think by 50 basis points at this upcoming meeting in order to add a bit more back to growth to keep it closer to the economy's potential. I mean, the market's fully priced for one cut, kind of stubbornly sort of 
undecided yeah. between whether they do one or whether they do two. I mean, I spoke to Jim Bullard last week, of course, the St. Louis Fed president. He said he thought that 50 basis points or half a percentage point would be sort of a overdone. bit too aggressive. Yeah. 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 And so there's going to be some disagreement here. Yeah. In fact, this is one of the first Fed meetings I've witnessed where we're going into it and they have not already made up their mind. It's clear they're going to have a hot debate. But even if I were Bullard, I see cumulative cuts that could be 50 basis points or more in my rates path. Am I really going to fight that hard against delivering more of it up front, which their own studies have suggested you want to go aggressive when you start cutting in order to guard against hitting the zero lower bound again. So actually, if you're thinking you're going to do two cuts in 2019, why not have more bang for the buck? The research suggests you'd front load that. Interesting. Yeah. What's the risk of alarming perhaps investors, the market, consumers, whatever it is, by, by doing that half a percentage point? Because you're kind of sending a message that perhaps you see something that yeah, we so, aren't yet. So the Fed talks about this. Yeah. We, we, we read transcripts in pa past cycles and they talked about informational risk. What message are we sending to markets by doing a 50 basis point cut? Is it, oh my gosh, the Fed knows something we don't. I think in the context of, uh, couching it in the context of insurance cuts, helping to keep yeah. the economy strong. We've got strong data that's been incoming on the, the domestic economy. And so you're couching it in that way. And it's more of a, this is careful and preemptive. And you get the message right, then I don't think you run that informational risk. But that's something they will be talking about. I mean, we've got two things here. As you point out, we've got the U.S. economy and what we're seeing there, and then we've got everywhere else. And, and what, 70% now of nations around the world are slowing to some degree. Yeah. We've also got central banks looking at stimulating or, or stimulating. Do you think U.S. recession can be avoided here by cutting rates quickly? Yeah, so I think that's exactly what the Fed is trying to do. Yeah. Now, you could say every Fed has tried to avert recessions. And they have been successful in the past, in the mid-90s, in the late 90s. We got insurance cuts. Then the Fed held steady, waited for the economy to turn. It did, and we took off again. Uh, as President Evans had said, in the 1990s, we cut uh, 75 basis points in order to hike 175 <laughs> basis points later on. So they can be successful, and their hope is that going preemptively as they are, that that will be what's needed. And by the way, it's not just the Fed. And as you mentioned, global growth is slowing just about everywhere. We're at our last count, our global team has 19 central banks that are ready to act. So this is a global effort in order to support growth and keep the expansion going. So back in 2014, you had a call, Vision 2020. You predicted that actually this would be the longest expansion in history. Yeah, it's you pretty well amazing. And truly called it. <laughs> and normally economists wouldn't make predictions that far out. No, dangerous. But <laughs> what we were looking at then still very much holds today. Household balance sheets, they are so protected in a rising interest rate environment. So we said even as the Fed starts to raise interest rates in this cycle, it would not hamper households' ability to spend that much because most of their balance sheet is locked in at fixed rates. Right. This is unique. It is very unique to this cycle. And that household dynamic means that 70% of your economy, which is U.S. households, is extremely healthy even this late into the cycle. And that's one reason why, even though recession risk is out there, it still remains relatively low for the U.S. Again, because the Fed is going to act as well. It kind of takes us back to what I've already asked you, but if you had to make a similar kind of judgment call today, 
sort of predicting out that far, what would you say? I would. I, I won't hold you to I it. I would say that when I sat there in 2014, I was much more sanguine on how much longer yeah. the expansion could last than I am today because then we were in the beginning of a cycle. It's a product of age. Here, yes. right. We're a little <laughs> bit older now, and we've got the global economy slowing and other factors out there, trade negotiations that create right. exogenous risks that we cannot predict. Yeah, it is tough. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Thanks Thank so you much. for trying to Thank answer. <laughs> Alan Zender there, the chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. Right, we've got the market open coming up. After the break, we're going to be talking more about Iran. What does a diplomatic solution here look like? And can we ratchet down the tensions? All that and the market open. Stay with us. Got an idea for an invention, but don't know what to do next? Call my friends at InventHelp. They've been helping inventors for 35 years. It's easy. With 65 offices, you can meet with an InventHelp representative near you who will keep your idea confidential and explain their invention process step by step. InventHelp has helped over 10,000 inventors get patents. And they offer 3D animations and prototyping services to help demonstrate your idea. InventHelp's exclusive data bank includes over 9,000 companies who have agreed to confidentially review new ideas, like yours. Your idea deserves a chance. Don't wonder what to do next. Step into the ring and take your best shot. Put InventHelp in your corner. Take action and get the help you need from InventHelp. Call today for free information. 800-417-0838. That's 800-417-0838. from the New York Stock Exchange. That is the opening bell, as you can see, more happy, smiling faces, and so they should be. U.S. stocks are rising for the first session of the week, taking back some of the losses that I mentioned that we saw in last week's trading session. Earnings season, of course, well underway this week. A quarter of S&P 500 companies reporting the likes of Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Tesla, of course, too, on Wednesday after the closing bell. Also keeping an eye on what's going on in the energy markets, too. You can see uh, we're seeing rises for uh, Brent and WTI, a rise of uh, three quarters of 1% right now amid uh, broader Middle East tensions, continuing to watch what's happening. We are off, though, session highs. The UK government has promised robust action, as we discussed earlier on in the show, if Tehran does not release a seized tanker. All right, let's talk this through. Uh, Paul, Wolf Paul Wolfowitz is a former U.S. Deputy Defense Secretary. He's also a former president of the World Bank and now a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Paul, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I just want to start by talking about what we're seeing in the Middle East and draw on your experience there. What do you make of what's happening with Iran right now and, and what is the appropriate response here? It seems to me that what's happening now makes it pretty obvious that the sanctions are really hurting. They wouldn't be behaving the way they are if it wasn't squeezing them. And I think the purpose of squeezing them is to try to come away with some kind of overall deal that deals with some of the defects of that so-called joint um, cooperative plan of action. I think they call it the JCPOA that was supposed to in their nuclear ambitions and certainly didn't. 
What we're seeing, though, is a, a tit for tat. We've seen uh, the UK seize an Iranian vessel thinking that it was contravening Assyrian sanctions. We now see the Iranians seizing a, a UK flagged ship. Just to mention one country that's now engaged with, with Iran alone, never mind what's going on with the United States. Should military, a military response of any form be avoided at all costs, whether it's the United States or it's the UK here too? You know, when you say avoided at all costs, that really means taking it off the table entirely. And I don't think, I, I, I think the Iranians should be made to worry about what's going to happen if they take this thing too far. On the other hand, I think we shouldn't exaggerate, put it the other way around. We should be well aware of the fact that we have the strong hand, they have the weak one. They don't have sanctions they can apply to us. They don't have a military that's comparable to ours. And importantly, what they're doing, for example, with the UK is bringing allies to our side. And I'm sure the British will be very, very helpful in anything that needs to be done in keeping this the free flow of oil out of the Persian Gulf. Why do you think they're doing that? Why do you think the Iranians are doing this? I mean, the UK is a country that has fought to try and hold on to the, the nuclear agreement here and to push the United States to reduce the sanctions at this stage. Why is Iran taking on an ally just for political gain or to establish the appearance of, of being in control here? Look, what you're really asking me is why did Iran insist on sending oil to Syria and violating the sanctions on Syria when they're trying to deal with sanctions themselves. Uh, that's what started this whole business with the UK. And I think the general behavior of Iran appears to fit the model of people who are, I, desperate's too strong a word, but who are very concerned about the situation that the sanctions have put them in, are trying to force their way out of it by threatening people and taking supposedly taking hostages and I don't I, I if I had to choose between Secretary Pompeo and the Ayatollahs as to whether these 17 people they arrested were really American spies I'll go with Pompeo I think what they're doing is demonstrating that they can coerce the Iranian people but it's much harder to coerce the United States or even the UK does this end up in a negotiated solution Paul, do you think? As you point out, this looks like desperate behavior from the Iranians under the pressure of U.S. sanctions. Is the White House getting this right? And in the end, does it, does it bring Iran to the table for an improved nuclear agreement? Because that takes time. Well, that will take time. And certainly that's what they've specifically appointed a special negotiator to do. But the Iranians have really so far really refused to engage, as far as I understand. And that's going to be the first requirement. Uh, and I'm afraid when they come to the table, they're going to feel like they've, they've submitted themselves. But that's not, I don't care about them saving face or not. What I do care about is getting to a better outcome for the whole region and for the United States. This is only one foreign policy challenge that the, uh, the current government here in the United States is facing. China is the other one and a battle over technology, over trade, all sorts of things here. Do you believe that the White House is handling China appropriately, given everything that you know with your experience at the World Bank and, and the challenges of tackling China at this stage? Is this being handled appropriately? Let me start by saying, compared to previous administrations, of which I was part, and I think I was part of the hopeful idea that China was on a course toward a better China and a better world. 
And for a long time, it looked that way. And I had no trouble saying, despite all the human rights violations in China, at least the Chinese people were much better off under Deng Xiaoping than they had been under Mao Zedong. Uh, if I, I think your listeners know which dictators I'm referring to. But then in the last five or ten years, they've steered a different course, a course of external aggressive behavior in the South China Sea, building whole new islands, which they then claim are Chinese territory. And I would say worst of all is the way they're treating their own subjects. I hesitate to say their own people because I don't think the Chinese people are particularly fond of this way of living. But putting, for example, non-Chinese speaking Muslim subjects in the western province of Xinjiang into what really can only be called concentration camps. They're not extermination camps, admittedly, like the Nazis created. But they're very close. They're certainly much worse than anything that was done, for example, and we're ashamed of it to Japanese Paul, Americans here during World War II. Paul, do you think that in light of everything that you've said, that, that President Trump should not trust Xi Jinping and therefore it's tough to do a deal here because, as you've pointed out, China's not changing for the better, it's changing for the worst. Can President Trump trust Xi Jinping? Uh, I don't think... I will. I think that line from President Reagan is exactly the right one. Trust but verify. Certainly don't expect that because they've signed something, they're going to stand by it. We've already seen in Hong Kong where they signed a commitment for 50 years that Hong Kong could have all the freedoms that it had under the British. It's ironic they had more freedoms on, as a British colony than they have now under as a part of communist China. And in the latest move, this law that was protested by a million people in, China, in Hong Kong, incredible number of people that turned out in a relatively small not even city, but a small province, to protest this law. Uh, basically, the, the Chinese were, excuse me, that Beijing was getting ready to take away all of the rights that had been promised in that agreement with the UK back in 1987. So I would say trust but verify and be sure if you affirm, if you discover that they're not keeping agreements, you need to go after that in some strong way. And I may not approve of every tactic that President Trump has used, but I certainly think that taking on China uh, in a peaceful but nonetheless aggressive fashion was necessary and long overdue. Mm. This uh, fits with the conversation that we're going to have very shortly. We're going to take a quick break here, but Paul, please stay with us because we're going to continue. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz is uh, going to be back with us when we mark the 75 years since the Bretton Woods Agreement. And as a former World Bank president, we'll get his take on the agreement's legacy and what lessons can be learned for 2019. first move this month marks 75 years since the Bretton Woods agreement it was a global monetary system devised during the final stages of the Second World War its aim was to see off the rise of protectionism and the competitive devaluation of currencies issues that sound familiar anyone in a moment we'll discuss its legacy but first Claire Sebastian looks back at how the Bretton Woods agreement was born it was the summer of 1944. In Europe, Allied forces were advancing into Nazi-occupied France. 44 Allied and associate countries arrived for the opening of the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. 
And in the mountains of New Hampshire, Allied finance chiefs were crafting a new post-war world order. To be discussed are plans for the stabilization of world currencies. The task at Bretton Woods was not just to rebuild countries ravaged by World War II. It was to avoid a repeat of the 1920s and 30s, a period of economic depression, widespread protectionism, and ultimately the rise of totalitarianism. These meetings are designed to promote trade in the post-war world and to create a foundation for lasting peace. That foundation came in the form of two institutions. The International Monetary Fund, which established a system of fixed exchange rates centered on the US dollar, which was pegged to gold, and the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, now part of the World Bank. Led by British economist John Maynard Keynes, this new financial system championed open markets and international coordination. We must protect the dollar from the attacks of international money speculators. While the fixed exchange rate system ended in the 1970s, the Bretton Woods institutions have survived to face new challenges. The rising influence of China. We are finally putting America first. And the emergence of leaders who advance nationalism over that spirit of global cooperation that underpinned those summer days of 1944. Sebastian CNN, New York. As Claire explained there, one of Bretton Woods' surviving legacies was the World Bank. And we're now joined once again by a former president, Paul Wolfowitz. Paul, fantastic to have you back with us, and uh, thank you for being patient there. As Claire was describing there, well, the spirit of the organization of, of this agreement was to prevent all the things that we're seeing today, rising nationalism, rising protectionism. Do you think those institutions can be used to help reverse? Can, can what we're seeing today be reversed? And if so, how? Um, I think you have to add a third institution, which is not commonly discussed. It was then called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or the GATT. And it's... Um, it was kind of replaced by something called the World Trade Organization, which I still believe is an effective organization. And one of our issues, which is to try to bring China into compliance with the commitments it made when it joined the WTO. And I think if that could happen, then we'd be making progress. I do think with respect to at least the World Bank and or let's call it what it was called originally, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, that it should think about its 75th birthday, not in the way that people who, people who are 75 can kind of pat themselves on the back and say, well, I made it to 75, and now it's time for a comfortable retirement. I think when an organization reaches that old age, it's time to really rethink its mission. And to be honest, in the private sector, corporations have usually done that multiple times by that age. And in the public sector, it's very hard for organizations to really rethink their mission. They need to think more like businesses, perhaps, to your point. You know, what you said as well there about tariffs not being necessarily the right answer here. If it's a way to bring China to the table and to allow, to facilitate China making changes that are to the betterment of their own country in the end and reform, opening up business sectors, will we look back and say actually tariffs were the right response here because they enacted change? Or do you think that's a pipe dream? I think you have to get their attention. I think in order to have a serious negotiation with them, and the negotiation should be about bringing them into compliance with the rules that they agreed to back, I guess, in the Clinton administration to join the WTO back then. Uh, and yet they've violated with impunity and they've 
outrageously been stealing intellectual property in the United States. I think that's one of the biggest concerns. And here we are, we've been building up, not, we haven't been building up, but we've been assisting Beijing to build up the, the economy of communist China while they are engaged in expanding territory in the South China Sea, actually creating territory with concrete around islands, using concrete to put their subjects in what they like to call re-education camps. I'd, I'd find a worse word for them. They're really giant prisons that contain something like a million of China's Muslims. And I think how they're using the resources that they, they have through the benefit of participating in the international trading system is something that ought to be looked at as well. Yeah, some huge questions still to be asked. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. Paul Wolfowitz there, joining Pleasure. us. Pleasure, thank the you. Show. Thank you. All right, you're watching First Move. We'll be right back. Welcome back to First Move. Japan is one of Washington's two strongest allies in Asia. And right now it's in a trade war with the other one, South Korea. And as our Paula Hancocks explains, to fully understand the current conflict between Tokyo and Seoul, you have to understand their wartime past. Listen in. Making a point with kimchi. A protester dressed as Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe takes a fermented cabbage beating by fellow South Korean protesters. Others pour out Japanese beer and sports drinks. Part of a growing boycott against Japan after the country imposed export restrictions on three chemicals used to make high-tech materials, such as display screens and memory chips. Materials which are vital to South Korean companies, including the world's biggest smartphone maker, Samsung. The consequences could be global. South Korea doesn't have a lot of inventory of these chemicals, so unless something is done, we could start seeing very rapidly a disruption in the supply chain. Samsung says they are assessing the current situation to minimize the impact. Earlier this month, Japan announced the restrictions, citing national security concerns, a claim South Korea rejected and said it's gathering evidence for a complaint to the World Trade Organization. Seoul sees the restrictions as retaliation for a series of disputes dating back to the early 20th century when Japan occupied Korea. Late last year, South Korea's Supreme Court ruled that Japanese companies have to pay compensation to Korean victims of forced labor during the Second World War. Japan challenged that ruling, saying that all wartime disputes had been settled under a 1965 treaty which established diplomatic ties between the countries. Japan denies that this has anything to do with its current export restrictions. We have made it clear that our move to carry out export controls appropriately is for national security purposes. It's not a countermeasure. Tokyo has also proposed removing Seoul from a white list of trusted trade partners. The vicious cycle of actions and counteractions is not desirable at all for either country. The potential for escalation and global repercussions has the attention of a key ally for both countries, the United States. Number one, you have the U.S.'s two most critical allies in Asia, uh, who are also side-by-side -side neighbors to each other and China. Uh, add to that the North Korea issue, where South Korea and Japan also play a very important part. So there's a lot of interest for the U.S. in seeing this matter resolved. Japan and South Korea have struggled to come to terms with their past for decades. But this dispute could reverberate around the world. 
Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. Yeah, it's going to be tough to untangle. Controversy now is flying around Paramount Pictures' sequel to Top Gun, even before the movie has taken off. The new trailer for Top Gun Maverick shows two patches originally showing the Japanese and Taiwan flags and now missing from Tom Cruise's jacket. Claire Sebastian is here with more. Wow, Claire. I mean, I saw this blow up on social media. Is this the price you pay for making sure you get your movie played in China and draw in those box office receipts there because it's a huge draw. Absolutely, Julia. That is the speculation. We should say neither uh, Paramount nor its financing and marketing partner Tencent Pictures have commented on this. But the, the presence of Tencent Pictures in this movie is one of the reasons why speculation is so rife. This is one of uh, China's biggest companies, part of Tencent. The other reason is, of course, uh, the geopolitical backdrop here. Uh, Chinese relations with Japan uh, have been somewhat strained over their territorial disputes in the East China Sea. We know that for years China has been pressuring foreign companies to, to not refer to Taiwan as a separate country, despite the fact that it's been self-governed for about 70 years. So all of that would align with this if this was uh, part of that picture. And of course, China is a critical market. It's the second biggest global box office. It's set to, uh, according to some estimates, overtake the US in the coming years. I think if this is the case, it does again highlight the power of this market, the fact that these movie companies in Hollywood simply can't afford to upset the Chinese authorities, who of course have the power to ban any movie they like. Absolutely, and I guess this wasn't a worry back in whatever it was, 1986, when the first movie came out, but a far greater problem now. Speaking of the power of the Chinese consumer here as well, this has been critically important too for the, the rise of Avengers, the endgame, of course, which has now surpassed, I believe, Avatar as the highest grossing film of all time. Is that right? That's right, Julia. This made me feel really old. I hadn't realized it had been 10 years since Avatar released it has held the top spot uh, of the highest grossing movie now for 10 years only to be supplanted this weekend by Avengers Endgame now in its 13th, uh, 13th weekend uh, it's now made 2.789 billion worldwide and you're right a lot of that is because of China it made 600 million uh, in China it's become the first foreign title to do that it's smashed a load of other box office records and of course not only does this show the power of China this shows the power of Disney through its acquisitions. It now owns not only Avatar, uh, which is now the second uh, top-grossing movie of all time, but of course, the Avengers franchise as well. Yeah, I've not seen the end game, but I tell you what, I'm gonna be in the queue for Top Gun too. Sorry, love Top Gun. <laughs> Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, that just about wraps up the show. Quick look at markets. We are in positive territory, ever approaching. What, some half a percent still now away from record highs. We'll continue the thread on the Express, but for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.